You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Hey, we have a really interesting show today. Uh, I know one of pe- people's favorite topics is food, and we got a food extraordinaire uh, here today with somebody who's seen it from a really interesting uh, perspective. With me is Jessica Harris, uh, described as a American culinary historian. Uh, she's a professor, and she's a, a cookbook author. And not only does she have a, a book out now, uh, she's got a series on Netflix which is based on the book. And that's a good thing to have both a book and a, uh, and a series that's based on it. Um, the book was called High on the Hog. It came out what, a, a couple of years ago. And it's just a, an exploration of food. And Netflix, Netflix is made. How many parts is the Netflix series? Well, the first series was four parts. And the second series, which is actually just going to happen, is... Um, another four parts so it's one of those things so it's eight parts in total wow that's, that's great now the, the um and, and when does the second series uh literally drops on wednesday the day before thanksgiving okay all right um the theme of what you write about is um you um it is the tie-in with african cooking and uh and american cooking and it's part of uh your research. I know you spent a good bit of time there. Um, by the way, there's a little uh, on the web, there's uh, a little vintage paper you're talking about your early days, and it's got some uh, scenes if you're going to Africa and seeing all the cooking and all that. Uh, I'd like people to access that. Is it on your website? or? Uh... Uh, it's not on my website. The, the trailer for the second season of High on the Hog has uh, a, actually a clip from me in the on the Today Show, I think it was back in the days with Brian Gumble and Willard Scott. Okay, so all right. That dates how long I've been doing this. Yeah. Well, Brian Gumble's from New Orleans, and you're kind of, and you're kind of from New Orleans. You're kind of like an adopted New, uh, New yeah, Orleans. New Orleans so. adjacent. <laughs> okay, but tell us. Okay, um, you have quite the career. At one point, you were writing for Essence magazine, and and as I understand this, somewhere around the, there, somebody got the idea that. Maybe you should write about cooking, and and I took you to Africa. Um, what what was your discovery when you went there? Well, actually, Errol, what happened was um, what took me to Africa was research for my doctoral dissertation, which is on the French speaking theater of Senegal. And when I went, I was surprised by the fact that some of the things that I tasted tasted like some of the things that I knew. Uh-huh. And so as probably as an academic, I wanted to know why. And I began to do a little research. I was also at that point travel editor at Essence and uh, would end up, you know, maybe in West Africa and then a month or so later might be in the Caribbean and a month or so after that might be in New Orleans or somewhere in the United States. And 
all of those things began to make uh, linkages in my mind and my taste buds. And I began to think about how things connected. And then I decided I needed to go out and try to connect the dots. And that's kind of how it happened. Is there one African country in partic particular that you said this this place more than any other place really defines African cooking? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think you can say that. I think uh, each, you know, it's just in uh, in the United States. Well, let's not even take the United States. Let's take South America, which is a continent. Um, is it the cooking of Brazil or is it the cooking of Peru? Uh, that would be like saying, is it the cooking of Senegal or is it the cooking of Benin or is it the cooking of Ethiopia? Um, I think each country has its own things that it adds to that pot of African diaspora food. And what happens with that is that um, when you put them all together, you've not only got something tasty, but you've got something that tells a very rich and interesting, to me, fascinating history. Like if somebody would come to New Orleans and dine in New Orleans and then go to Atlanta, heaven forbid, and then go to, and then go to Minneapolis, um, there would be some differences. I mean, they could see there's a real difference here. I mean, if there's ways you can kind of define the cuisine. So, yeah, no, I just meant in the sense that um, New Orleans, I think, sticks out, if you will. New Orleans is a different spot. I've always personally defined New Orleans as the northernmost point in the Caribbean. Sure. It really isn't the American South in that sense. It's a very different spot. It's got different things going on. It was Roman Catholic. It wasn't Protestant. It dealt with a lot of things differently in much the same way as, you know, Louisiana's laws today are still Napoleonic code, not as are the laws of the rest of the country. So that's what I meant when I was trying to say that some of the things that people uh, find in one part of Africa, they may not find in another part. The difference between the food from the Sahel, which is grasslands, and the food from the forest is very different. In one region, you've got possibly rice, you might have millet, um, you have fonio, you have other grains, and in the forest, people might be eating yams. And when I say yams, I don't mean those Louisiana yams that are really sweet potatoes. I mean true yam, which is something different. So you've got a lot more geographical um, distinction in the food as well. Is there any African cuisine that you can say most defines New Orleans cooking? Okay, there, I think there are two that are probably most influential on the cooking of New Orleans. Okay. Uh, the cooking of Senegal. Senegal is the westernmost point. It was also a point that gave many of its uh, children, unfortunately, up to the transatlantic slave trade. So a lot of the early people involved in New Orleans and in the food ways of New Orleans were Senegalese at origin. Equally, the cooking of Benin, Benin, the Bite of Benin, a small country with a big influence um, between uh, Nigeria and Togo. And there, again, people from Benin were taken in the transatlantic slave trade, brought to New Orleans. And so the cuisines, if you will, of Benin and New Orleans were probably the most foundational 
in terms of the cuisine or the African import into the cuisine of New Orleans? What would define it? Would there be a particular scene, a particular seasoning that's common to both or, or, or way of cooking or? Well, I think uh, in Senegal, if you think about it, they use a lot of rice. Africa has its own native rice. We think of rice, we think of Asia immediately, but Africa has its own native rice. It's called Oritsa glabirima as opposed to the orisa sativa that is Asian rice. And uh, so a lot of the foods in Senegal are rice-based dishes, so that they do a dish that is rice made red nowadays with tomato paste, probably before might have been red palm oil, uh, that has cooked with it and served with it fish, vegetables, eggplant, carrots, um, squash sometimes, and um, and is served with fish. It's the national dish. It's called chebujen. As it travels through um, Western Africa, it becomes jollof rice. Jollof for the empire, the jollof empire of the Wolof people of Senegal as uh, either as chebujen or as jollof rice probably crosses the Atlantic and you find it in Charleston, South Carolina as red rice, but you find it in New Orleans morphed, not exactly, but as an originator probably of jambalaya. So you've got that journey one way or the other. In, uh, in Benin, you have dishes that are called sosfei, leaf sauces, or, and here you're going to get the hint right there when it when I say the name, sauce gombo. Gombo means okra. Gombo means okra. In French today, it comes out of the formerly called Bantu languages, the languages of uh, Western Central Africa, in which the word for okra is uchin gombo or gingombo, and that gombo obviously becomes our gumbo. And, and yet, not all gumbo served here, perhaps most of them don't have okra. I know, I know, but the, the yeah. okra was probably a part of it because, um, you know, a gumbo, I'm not saying, is absolutely African-derived, African, you know, completely. The roux is French, obviously. Um, if people are using filet, that's Native American, and there is a whole school of thought that says that Filet at some point was called combo, combo, not gombo. Um, so you've got all of those things. But when you start to look at the preponderance of not necessarily Native American chefs or cooks in the kitchens of New Orleans, but certainly in the antebellum period, the preponderance of enslaved African-American chefs in New Orleans kitchens working with, under, and sometimes solo, um, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. With jambalaya, the um, the first part of that word, the J-A-M part, doesn't they come from jambon, the French word for a ham? I, or... It may very well. It may very well. Um, but um, I wasn't talking about the name so much as the dish itself. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, but the the name, I have no idea. I've I've seen people say that the etymology of jambalaya is jambon alaya. I don't know what the alaya would be, but <laughs> yeah. you know, there it is. It's it's kind of, this is not an exact science. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
you know, and everybody's grandma's got a different recipe, so it all changes. Well, that dish you described sounds wonderful. I mean, with the rice and everything. How is that rice different? Is it like a, is it like a white grain rice like we have Actually, here? Actually, it's a red rice. Oh, it is? It's a red rice. It is used ritually. It apparently was grown over here at some point, but has now in... I mean, it's being brought back, but it no longer continuously is growing over here. So it's a different rice. And if you want to taste that dish, you can go to Dakarnola, where um, Chef uh, Serimbai does occasionally chebujen. So you can have that Senegalese rice and fish in its original form. Yeah, I've never seen that on the menu in New Orleans. It's some weird to know that it's, uh, that it's there. Yeah, yeah, it's at Dakarnola, or it can be at Dakarnola. It's not always there. Yeah, the um, um, you mentioned that that the fish served with it. Is the fish like steamed and put into it, or is it like fried and put on the side, or or what? Fried and um, it's served on top. Sometimes you get, depending on how fancy folks want to be, you can get. Uh, and let me back up a minute. In traditional houses in Senegal, people eat around a communal bowl. And so you get a, a bowl that's like a basin full of rice and the rice and the vegetables. The vegetables may be cooked a little bit on the side uh, or put on the side, cooked whole, um, and then the fish on top of it. The fish is more often than not a, a, a large game fish called chof, and I don't know what the English translation would be. But it is prepared sometimes with what's called rof in the middle, which is a kind of parsley-garlic mixture. And clearly, the parsley-garlic comes probably from the French a little bit, but it's slid into pockets. So the fish is very tasty and savory in and of itself. And well, if you're eating around the communal bowl, the fish and the vegetables are there, but you're supposed to eat out of the quadrant in front of you. You're not supposed to wander all over the bowl. Uh, people traditionally eat with their hands, their right hand. If you are a foreigner or if you are simply inept at eating with your hand, which I was for much of my time in Senegal, um, then you were usually given a big spoon, uh, like a tablespoon to eat with. And the hostess's job is to make sure that portions of meat are put over portions of fish in this case are put into your quadrant so that you know you don't go roaming all over the bowl but the hostess makes sure that you get the and if you're the guest usually you get the tastier portions of the food yeah seems like a good way to avoid fights too you know somebody kind of dipping into your own yep yep it's like stay in your lane <laughs> into your point. the um what would be typically what would be a typical drink that goes along with that food? Well, Senegal is, oh, well, the last I looked, which was a decade or more ago, was 81% Muslim. So people are not drinking wine. They're drinking water. Um, they have um, some herbs that are sold in the market that are twisted into almost, uh, if you've ever seen the sage things that people might sage their house with. These are sort of like long, thin variations of that, and they're called chep. And you put that in the water, and it flavors the water. Um, so that's one thing they might be drinking. They might be drinking something called bisap rouge. Bisap is um, 
hibiscus. It's called Flor de Jamaica in Mexico. It's called Carcade in Egypt. It is a hibiscus relative, and the pod is distilled into a kind of tea that is then cooled down, and so that's bisapouge. So those are some of the things that might be consumed. From being a travel writer as well as a culinary historian, and from all your travel in Africa, is there one nation that's your your favorite, just all around favorite? Oh no, um, uh, <laughs> there be dragons. I, uh, you know, it's kind of like asking her mom about her favorite child. Mm. Uh, I have spent a great deal more time in Senegal first and in Benin second. I tend to spend more time in the French speaking countries because I speak fluent French and, um, you know, I am a little more special there than I am in yeah. the English speaking countries. And I like being special. And of course, the, um, that French influence in African food, that goes to the Caribbean too, because there's some French islands in the Caribbean. And Oh, absolutely. There are French islands in the Caribbean that are, I mean, politically part of France. Sure. So, I mean, Martinique and Guadeloupe and the out islands there and French Saint-Martin are all literally parts of France. They're considered to be states like Alaska would be to exactly. the United States, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the département d'outre-mer, the departments of the outer seas kind of thing. Um, so um, uh, you, see the, you see the influence, you can see some of the connections. Some of them you can see come from the African side, if you will. Some of them come from the French side as well. So, um, you know, the cooking, cooking in general is not, monolithic you can't say this is only that you know um you can talk about where ingredients come from like senegal had its own rice uh if you see a dish that's prepared with corn somewhere along the line america's involved because corn is from the americas and so you get all of those kinds of things those tomatoes in that chebujin that tomato paste couldn't have existed in uh, the food of the African continent prior to 1492, because it's part of what used to be called the Colombian Exchange, but which is now called a world in transition, which is what happened with food and foodstuffs when uh, Columbus opened up this hemisphere mm -hmm. in a way to the world. So tomatoes are native to this hemisphere. Potatoes are native to this hemisphere. Corn is native to this hemisphere. So imagine Italian food, no tomatoes. Yeah. You know, German food, uh, uh, Irish food, no potatoes. All of that didn't exist before 1492. So all of this world in transition is is a whole new thing. Yeah, the, yeah, the Irish are so identified with the potato because the Irish potato, but yeah, they came, the potato, what, they came from South America. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, any particular seasonings that are like the go-to seasonings in African cooking? Um, usually very simple salt, pepper. There are a lot of native seasonings, uh, something that used to be used in uh, federal United States, uh, you know, colonial and federal United States called cubebs. Cubebs are, they look like black peppercorns with a tail. Uh-huh. 
and um, they were used in brewing in federal and colonial America, but then fell out of use. We don't see them very much anymore. In Benin in West Africa, it's so commonly used, it's called piment pays, pepper of the country. Okay. And of course, in France, there's the difference between piment and poivre, piment being chilies, the red hot peppers and such, and poivre being black pepper. So, well, your book... Uh, you, you've written many books, but the current one, the one that's uh, um, been made into the Netflix documentary series, High on the Hog. Tell us about the hog. What's so important about that in the culinary history? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, people are tricked by that title because they see the title High on the Hog and they think it means it's a book about pigs or about pork. It is not. The book is actually a narrative history of African food and its influence on the food of the American uh, United States. So um, but the term the, high on the hog would be one that expresses like a, a desire to live well. And yeah, yeah. back to old fashioned Massa and John humor. John is a trickster. And uh, in the telling of the tales, he always manages to get over on old master. Okay. And so the Massa and John story can be a long shaggy dog story, but the bottom line, short version, um, Massa wants John to kill hogs and he's going to pay him the head, the ears, the tail, all of the less noble parts of the pig, as they say, all of which are eaten in African-American traditional foods. But uh, and John acquiesces and says yes and does that for several years. But eventually, John gets his own hogs, and um, you know hogs can eat anything. And so John gets his own hogs. And one day, Massa comes down to ask him to help. You know, it's hog killing time, and John says, mm, "Well, Massa, I don't rightly think so. I have my own hogs now." I'm eating pork chops and midland and backbone and ham. I am eating high on the hog, higher on the hog, right. not feet, but the ham, literally higher on the hog. Oh. The um, With the pig, it's kind of like a universal food, though. Absolutely. But there weren't pigs in this country again until that Colombian exchange. Yeah. I arrived in uh, North America with DeSoto. I've forgotten the year, but they arrived and certainly had their way with us, yeah. you know. The um, do they make sausages in Africa? They don't eat a lot of pork in uh, most well, much of the parts of Western Africa that I go to. Um, in some cases, because those areas have been recently Islamized, but pork is just not one of the meats that is generally consumed. It's you know eaten, but not to the degree that it's eaten over here. Okay. Other than pork, is there any other meat that's uh... That's really cool. Lamb is eaten a lot. Lamb, um, not that much goat. Goat, I think, is more New World, but lamb would be the the kind of major meat. Um, small animals. I'm not sure why. I suspect it has something to do with uh, the tsetse fly. How how large cattle can and cannot survive in what regions and what areas. Um, but um, Lamb is very, very popular. Of course, chicken. <laughs> yeah. When you were talking about the legends about the trickster, it reminds me of those stories. And I think they came from Senegal about the um, 
the rabbit. Bro, bro rabbit. Yeah, which rabbit. became which became bro rabbit, but it had another name over there. But what the, well, it was Luc le Lièvre, Luc le Lièvre, Luc the Hare. Over uh -huh. But the trickster tales of bro rabbit are a combination of those stories of Luc le Lièvre from Senegal and the stories of Anasi the Spider from Ghana. Anasi is another trickster. And in fact, uh, Harold Corlander, an early anthropologist, um, actually comes up with, and it's in a book of uh, African folk tales, uh, uh, a version of that Br'er Rabbit story that is an Anansi story that goes back to uh, Ghana, basically the country that is today Ghana. Well, the story, I, I forget, one of the um, Laura Plantation in Louisiana. If, if oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, there were drawings, what, on a fence or something, and they and they claimed that, and I think the, the enslaved people there were from Senegal, and they claimed that that was traces down to there, and that was some of the first, I guess, evidence of that legend. Yeah, no, I think I think that is absolutely correct. I'm not trying to naysay it. I'm just saying, as yeah, happens sure. often, there are two, two origin points. Senegal being one with the stories of Le Lièvre that are traditional Senegalese tales, and then um, Ghana with, and actually Ghana with tales of Anansi the Spider, and those Anansi tales come over to the New World too become Br'er Rabbit as well, but they also go to Jamaica where there are a ton of Anansi stories. And the theme seems to be very popular, the idea of the of the little outcast creature overcoming the Absolutely. Um, tales. The little yeah. one, the little one getting over on the big one. Yeah. Well here is a theory which is probably dead wrong, but I'll tell you, okay, that all right, so these Br'er Rabbit stories started started showing up in the United States and um Somebody, I think it was Alcee Forche or something, wrote about it. But anyway, people started writing about it. I think Burr Rabbit may have become the forerunner to Bugs Bunny. Could be. I and have he, no idea, but that sounds good. Yeah, because he would be, you know, they'd have seen these kind of tales of this little, you know, wisecracking animal, especially a a, a rabbit in a game. And a they just exploded. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Bugs with, yeah, yeah. What's up, Doc? You know, he yeah, gets yeah. Up all of them. And, and, and Bugs is pretty snide, man. I mean, you can't get him. So right there is a, a, a contribution. So the um, so pork then, how was it most commonly served over there? I actually have not eaten a lot of pork in West Africa. Okay. So I would, I, I really don't know how it's served. I have not had that much, not been served that much. I would imagine chops, but I think if, if it's served, it's um, it's in many ways consumed by um, expats or tourists mm -hmm. as much or more than by the people who actually live and are from there. Do they make any? Are there any popular sweet dishes there? Uh, there's not really a tradition of desserts. Sometimes the sweets are in the forms of fritters. And there's a whole discussion that could be made about fritters and how how fritters come across the Atlantic. That whole idea of frying in deep oil, um, the way that uh, that we have in New Orleans, we have uh, the beignet, the beignet, the yeasted beignet are obviously French. There's no question about that. But the cala is definitely 
a connection with Western Africa with those rice fritters, which can be sweet or savory. And yeah, and the the, the kawa used to be see stories about these people selling kawas on the on, on the corners of French. I mean, it used to be a big thing in New Orleans, and now and then it just fell well, away for some reason. It died out. Then there was what is it? The um, I think it was the coffee pot that. Oh yeah, the coffee pot. Yeah, it was the restaurant, the coffee pot. And then back in the I guess the nineties, eighty late eighties or nineties at some point, um, Poppy Tooker really took it on to bring Kala back and did a pretty good job with, you know, raising everyone's awareness about it. So, you know, there all things connect. Yeah. And there was a restaurant in Kenner for well, it was called Kala. Okay. okay. And, um, and they had all kinds of different flavors of, of Kala. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Kala and Kenner go together. <laughs> I don't know. Probably and, not. Yeah. And uh, the restaurant didn't make it, but it was a, uh, um, it, was, it was a nice place. So, all right. If you were having some of your favorite people over for dinner, and you really wanted to fix them a really good dinner, okay, showing your best stuff, okay, what you doing? What would you fix? Oh, it would depend on the time of year. I might do a leg of lamb. I like lamb. I find lamb is one of the few meats that I can eat at any level of cooking between, you know, pretty, pretty rare to well done. Um, I do a crust of um, herbs, rosemary, uh, herbe de Provence with the lavender in it, um, all sorts of things like that. I sort of marinate it in red wine, then do the crust um put it in the oven i'm lazy i don't use a rack i bake it on top of bed of sweet potatoes and white potatoes that i just sort of cut up the juices drip down on the potatoes um some of the herbs flavor the potatoes i then serve the freshest smallest wonderful string beans i could get the french haricot vert mm. um I might make a mint sauce, but I, I make a mint sauce with um, with hot pepper. So it's a spicy mint sauce. It sometimes has a little bit of rum in it if I'm feeling frisky. Um, uh, other, I'd have a salad. That's a, It's a very European menu is sounding. Um, alternately, I could do a chicken yasa. Uh, a Senegalese sort of dish, which is chicken. I particularly like dark meat, so I do chicken thighs. Uh, chefs talk about um, infusing flavor with chicken yasa. It is marinated and then grilled and then stewed. So you've got three different ways of infusing flavor in it. And it's a lemon um, peanut oil marinade. Uh, onions, lots and lots and lots of just plain globe onions, um, cut into thin slices. The marinade is the olive oil and or the peanut oil and the lemon juice. Um, then um, you, as I say, you grill it. Then um, you no, you marinate it. Then you grill it. Then you stew it. It's served over white rice. Uh, if you want to sort of jazz it up a little bit, as some people do in Senegal, it then becomes a yasaganar suer, uh, chicken yasa 
swear. And that means you would make it fancier and people make it fancier by cutting up uh, pimento stuffed olives, obviously not West African uh, in origin and uh, maybe adding slices of carrot to it as well. So that would be another meal. So it's like, it's like food is like music all over this fusion ultimately of different, different influences. Right, who invented the omelet? Yeah, who did? The French, huh? Maybe. Somebody probably broke an egg somewhere and whisked it up. I think the omelet as we know it may be French, but we have Spanish omelets. We have all kinds of different omelets. We know there's a story of a town in France. It was called Abbeville. There's several Abbeyvilles in the world. And the story was, was that Napoleon was bringing his army through there. They were going to conquer someplace and they had to feed them. And so they went like to the local people. So I need you to feed my army. Okay. So that, okay. Well, the reformers all they had was eggs, okay? And okay. so they took the eggs and they did it and they just kind of scrambled. And that was the origin, according to the story, the origin of the scrambled eggs to feed the Well, it turns out Napoleon really, really liked it. All right. And it became like a big deal after that. So, okay. I hadn't heard that one, but I, you know, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. canned food goes back to the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. We, Good point. If we, you know, it, came up with so that his you know i think it was napoleon mm -hmm. or somebody in that era who said an army marches on its stomach right so that canned food was invented if you will to be able to take this preserved stuff around with the army yeah let me ask you before we go about about gumbo because we're talking about the african origin and in, in, in the name um what's your favorite type of gumbo i am awful in new orleans i am but i i thank you all for allowing me to stay i am actually allergic to shellfish okay so no shrimp. crawfish no crawfish no shrimp no crab you know oh, so my favorite gumbo is the um duck on dewey gumbo yeah you know because that's pretty much the only one i've ever tasted yeah but i agree i, I like the meat gumbo is okay Mm -hmm. And it's something that bothers me about things like um, chicken and oyster gumbo. I mean, like 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 meat and seafood. I think you, you got a seafood gumbo or you got a meat gumbo. I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah, I think I like chicken sausage. And as far as the uh, okra, I like okra and gumbo. I, I like the texture it brings to it. Even mm -hmm. though it's rare, I mean, not many people serve okra gumbo. But, but I mean, yeah, so that'd be my choice. Okra gumbo with chicken and sausage. Okay. Okay, I'm with you on that. But you're the authority. You're the one that uh, that should be telling. All right. So, the um, after you finish with High on the Hog, what's next? What's, what's your next big idea? Oh gosh, I've got several of them. Um, I am finishing up a book that I'm not allowed to talk about just yet because it's not finished, and I'm revising a book. Ditto. So one one of my older books is coming back at you and the end of 2024 and a revised shape with some new additions. And Can you say what that book is? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Okay. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of plans. Yeah. There are a lot of plans afoot. So if someone wants to get a copy of the book, High on the Hog, 
I, I assume it's available on the websites and the bookstores. I mean, it's out there, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's it. Well, actually, the thing is, it's having this renaissance as a result of the Netflix series. It was originally published in two thousand and eleven, so it is not only out there; it's been out there for a long time. Did you get much reaction to the Netflix series? Oh my gosh, yes, yes. People have just been extraordinary. I was somewhere yesterday, and somebody walked up to me and just out of the blue, somebody I didn't know said, "I love your work." I've been following you. I love your work. It it's been an extraordinary experience. You know, well, that's about one person to comment on because uh, uh, Leah Chase. Um, didn't you know her? Didn't you work with her? Was you old friends or? Uh... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I actually called Mrs. Chase Aunt Leah. Oh, really? After my mother died, and she knew my mother, they knew each other. She took me aside one day and she said, mm, just got prayed on this and I've decided I'm going to take you on. So I called her Aunt Leah until the day she died. I am enormously honored by the fact that the Chase family asked me if I would speak at her funeral, which I did. And... um many of the second generation of um or the third generation of chases uh tracy and eve and i can't i'm gonna forget names and they're gonna well, they, well there's duke chase okay well, well yeah duke, of course and, but, and he, he's becoming the big star now because he has the cooking series now on series exactly but what i was going to say is i'm honored by the fact that they call me auntie jess so <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of a tangential member of the family. Yeah. She was really a special person and just a very nice person. And uh, you could learn a lot from her. Uh, you know? Extraordinary. She was absolutely extraordinary. And, and, and of all the many stories, like they have the stories about the uh, um, the days of segregation when they had like these men who were white men who were having a, a meeting to, to, to kind of change the legislation so it'd be favorable. And, and they kind of, at the time, the restaurants uh, weren't legally integrated, but they'd kind of go in there and she'd feed oh, them upstairs. That, and, uh, upstairs room that they are, the yeah. is in the process of renovating it to make it a memorial to the, of those days. And so, yeah, no, that she was very much, it was, it was, food was her way in. Food was her way in, but she loved art. She was a long time member of the board of trustees of noma um she had established pretty much her own museum in the restaurant anybody who goes there there's an extraordinary collection of african-american art um she was involved in civil rights she fed some of the freedom riders when they returned from being in jail um she was a force of nature quite amazing I don't know if you've seen it, but in the last year, the state has established what they call a civil rights trail, uh, mm -hmm. where they have monuments or placards right. at different places along the way. And one of the first places they did was Dookie Chase. Okay, you know they have one right out in front of it, and they're beautifully done, and then throughout the state. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I thank you very much. It's been very educational. Well, uh, thank you, thank you, Errol. Uh, do, do you get to Louisiana very often, or uh... I'm on a plane heading to New Orleans tomorrow? Okay. Well, just stay here. <laughs> <I've got> to, <laughs> you know, make it easy.
bring that cat with you and because uh, I'm sure New Orleans will embrace it already has. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank Take care. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.